I grew up in the church, you know, grew up every Sunday going to church from a little kid all the way through high school. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, I don't remember a lot of lessons that I learned throughout that time, but one lesson stood out. I was probably around junior high, and it was on the topic of prayer. So how does God answer prayers? And the teacher, I remember him kind of comparing answered prayers to a stoplight. You know, there's a red, yellow, and green. And so sometimes God answers prayers like a red, like stop, no. And sometimes it's a green, you know, yes, go. And then sometimes it's that yellow. And they said it's a maybe. And I, I remember that sticking out to me, like maybe. Didn't do much until I learned how to drive. Now here I am as a 16-year-old going down the street, and I see the light go from green to yellow, and immediately in my mind I think, well, maybe, you know, maybe. So pull the Oldsmobile down into fourth gear, gas a little bit, get through those two lines, you know, the first two tires are right past the line, right when it turns red, and you're like, I made it. You know, so answered prayers was like, to me, it was like, yes, no, and probably, you know, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I saw the prayers, and I think throughout, you know, the, the years, I kind of advanced, and I kind of moved from like a, a stoplight to just doors, you know, and that's kind of where, where I am now. I pray for God to open doors or to close doors, and, um, you know, just ask that. Whatever is, is coming through, I just say, Lord, if you, you know, if this is your will, open the doors and let me walk through, and if it's not, you know, shut the door, and I'm fine with that. Maybe you've had those same kind of experiences, same kinds of prayers, um, Probably for any of you who have jobs, you know, that's probably uh, something you've prayed for before, right? The beginning, you're like, just give me any job, you know, anything will do. And then you're like, well, now give me a better job. And so we kind of pray this way, and I remember praying that way too. You know, years and years ago, we had a neighbor who wanted to start a, a foundation. He had some money, and it was kind of a philanthropy business. And he talked to me about running the Christian ministry side. And he says, here's the, here's the goal. It's like when we hear people, you know, churches or ministries that, that have like great, you know, desires to do something great for God, that we're going to fund the money for that. And you'll be in charge of that. You'll, you know, find the people and, and disperse the money. And that sounds like, doesn't that sound great? Working for a foundation like that would be awesome. But Lord never opened those doors. The foundation never started, never got the funding, and that just ended. But I remember kind of being like annoyed, like, but Lord, that would have been so great. Like, that's what the world needs. But that was that side. Then a little later, I'm here at this church. And a little later, there was this other opportunity that came up um, on the side. It was uh, to be, uh, work for the military, to work for the Air Force as a chaplain, and uh, to be in the Air National Guard, and that's what I do now. And I remember that process. I remember kind of like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I'm not really a military guy, you know, I don't really want to do that. But I... I I would pray for open doors, and the doors would like fly open, and they were just like door after door after door that should be shut, that are shut for so many people, weren't shut, and I would tell people like, hey, here's what happened, here's how easy it was, and they're like, are you kidding me? It's never that easy. Um, getting the military is hard, but for me, for whatever reason, it was easy, and uh, I just remember at some point just saying, well, I better walk through these doors, um, and I'm so happy that I have because now I can be a pastor to our military members and care for them. And so it's funny just how we, we you know, ask for one thing, but God brings something even better. And uh, that was my case. And per perhaps you've had that story too. You pray for one thing and God says no, but something else happens. Um, maybe you're praying for something right now. You're asking for the Lord. Uh, maybe it's a business venture, right? You know, just kind of 
some things are coming together and you think this would be great for you know, business and I could make some money and give it to the church or missions or other groups, like it would be fantastic. Maybe you're praying for individuals, right? Um, a, a child or a family member or friend, or maybe you're, you're asking for, you know, Lord to bring someone into your life, like a spouse or something like that, and you're, you're asking those kinds of questions. Maybe it's the, the job, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's school, maybe you've, you've always wanted to go to a Christian school or seminary, and you're kind of thinking that you would like to do that, or maybe missions. You've kind of always had this desire to do missions, but for whatever reason, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, these are lots of prayers, and there's so many more. We pray all the time. What will you do if God says no? What would you do if God says, no, not right now. This is, you're not the right person or the right place. You know, how do we respond to that? Well, in today's story, Fortunately enough, we see how David responds to that because David wants to do something great for the Lord and he thinks it makes sense. He thinks it's perfect. It will align. It'd be a great thing, but God says no. So how does he respond? We'll look at that in just a minute, but let me get you caught up to where we're at. We're in first, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be in there and a few other places today. But in chapter 6, we, we skip, we're going to skip over that, and it's a shame because it's a wonderful passage about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? Ark of the Covenant, if just to kind of give you a refresher, is where God, when, they, when the people came out of Egypt and they're in the desert, God says, I want you to build this Ark of the Covenant. And uh, there's, I think there's a picture of it. Um, that uh, it's, it's going to be a box, it's out of gold, there's going to be some angels on top, and that's where I'll meet you. Okay, it's going to be housed in a tabernacle. This is a, a big elaborate tent uh, that, that the people would make. And this would be God's dwelling place. While they're going through the desert and they're kind of packing up and moving from different places, this would be an easy way to pick up uh, the, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and move it. There's very specific instructions, like very specific instructions on how they would move this. And uh, they were very careful with that. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites are in a battle with the Philistines, like their nemesis. And they lost one battle, 4,000 people died, and they said, but we, we need something special. We need that, we can, we can beat them. If only we had the Ark of the Covenant. Seemed like it might be a good idea, but was it? No, 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 a bad idea. Because God doesn't move that way. He doesn't operate that way. But they went anyway, they got the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into camp, and they were so excited. God is with them, they will never be able to lose now. Chapter 4 explains how badly they lost. 30,000 people died that day. The Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines were thrilled because they have a new God now. And so chapter 5 kind of explains just how all the chaos that ensued by them trying to keep and harness God and Finally, they said, forget it, let's send them back to the Israelites, we, we don't want them. And so they put them on a cart, they went back into the land of Israel, went to a little village, and the men of the village saw the ark, and they were thrilled, because it had finally come back, and so they had never probably, I guess it hadn't happened yet, but um, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark hadn't been released yet, but they should have known not to look in it, because God said, don't look in it, don't touch it, anything like that. But 70 men peered into it like, what's inside? They looked inside and 70 men died. Tragic story. Israel was grieved. They said, well, why? We don't want this here. And so they gave it to the local priest, Abinadab. He took care of it. 
And it was in his house or his barn or whatever for about 60 years. He just sat in there. All of King Saul's reign never mentions it. He had nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant. But now we have David as king. David is in Jerusalem, and David says, we're bringing it back. We're bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. So they went down to Benadab's house. They got 30,000 people. They were so excited. This was going to be a great parade. It's about 10 miles from that house into Jerusalem, pretty much all uphill. So Benadab's son said, but we don't want to carry it uphill. Let's get a cart. That's what the Philistines did. Seemed like it worked then. We should do that. They put it on a cart, but as it was going, it hit a rock, and one of his sons, Uzzah, reached his hand out so that the Ark of the Covenant would fall, wouldn't fall. But by touching the Ark, he died. God killed him for touching the Ark, touching something so sacred. So David's totally upset with God, really frustrated and mad that he would kill such a good young man. And so they just parked it. They just took it off the road. They put it at some guy's house, and they said, we'll just figure out what to do with it. Funny thing happened. For the next three months, this man's house was blessed. It doesn't say what happened exactly, but maybe, you know, all of his livestock were having lots of babies, and, you know, everybody was healthy. Maybe his stock portfolio kind of shot through the roof. Whatever it was, news got back to David saying, hey, this guy's been really, really blessed for these last three months. And so David said, okay, we need that. As king, as, as ruler of this country, like, I need all the blessings I can get. And so let's figure out how to move it the right way, and let's do it and bring it into Jerusalem, which happens. There's a great celebration. It's a great parade. Everybody's thrilled except for David's wife. She is so upset with the way David handled himself, but that just kind of shows a little bit of her heart. All of that is in chapter 6. And so now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is now wanting to do something great for the Lord. All these wonderful things have happened. He has been made, had this custom home made out of cedar. You can just like smell that, right? A home made out of cedar. That would be so great. And he's looking out the window and he sees this Ark of the Covenant in an old, dirty tent. It's rained on. There's construction going on. There's dust all over it. And David has this great idea. I'm going to make the home, a home for the Ark of the Covenant. That's what I'm going to do. And that's when God says, nice plan, but it's not my plan. It's not my will. And he says, no. So how do we respond at times like that? My encouragement to you is that when you bring your hopes and dreams, when you bring your prayers to the Lord, like bring them, but understand that if God says no, that there's a reason. Maybe not according to his will. Maybe there's something that he's going to do that's far better, far greater than anything we could ever imagine. The important thing is that God is at work, right? He's not trying to be mean to you, not trying to rain on your parade, but it's because God is doing something great. Let's let him continue to be great even through our prayers. So a few things we'll look at today, but we'll start in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. And here in this passage, here's what I want us to see, that we're to bring our hopes and dreams to the Lord, continue to bring these desires, but bring them with an open hand, okay? Here's what David does. He wants to do something great for God, but he wants to, you know, thank God for all he's done, 
But instead of building an amphitheater for the Lord, instead of building a zoo or a life-size ark or anything like that, he says, I want to build this home, this nice, beautiful temple. I can just picture it. So we see the process that he, he went through. And it's, all right, it's a good process for any of us to, to look at. But in, in verse 1, it says this, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. He has this concern for God, and, he, and that's a right concern. Right? That's all good. He really wants to take care of the Lord, and he wants to put the Lord as the highest priority. So great concern, great start. He also has this great goal, this goal to, to bless the Lord with this building of the temple. And, and it's weird that God says no to him. It's almost like God was saying, like, no, this isn't a good thing. But he tells him, like, no, your goal is correct. The, your goal is right, just the timing is off. A little later in, in uh, First Chronicles chapter 22, uh, he mentions this. He says, but you, you're not going to build it. I'm going to say no to you. And he says, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one to build a house for my name. See, so David had a good concern, and he had the right goal. The issue was that it wasn't for David to build. It was going to be for someone else, his son, Solomon. He also, we also see he has the right heart, right? He has the right heart. His heart is in the right place. His motives are good. God tells him early in, second, in First Chronicles 22, he says, you're not going to do it because you've shed a lot of blood. You have been a man of war. Right? And so some people hear that and say, well, if he hadn't fought so much, then he could have built it. But that wasn't what he's saying. He's saying, you have a mission to fulfill what Joshua never finished. When, you, when, when I brought the people into the promised land, you were just supposed to clear out all the enemies, but you cleared out like 80% of them. There's still like 20%. There's these little pockets all over. Jerusalem was a good example last week. The Jebusites were in there, and they were just held that place firm. There's these little pockets all over. He says, your job is to clear them out. You are to provide security to my land. That's your job. When you finish that job, and then there's peace, that's when your son will build this. So your heart is right. It says in 1 Kings that you did well to have a heart to build a temple in my name. It wasn't your job, and it wasn't the right time. So we see he has this right desire, he has this right goal, he has the right heart, and he even has the right process. In verse 2, it says, he went to Nathan the prophet. Nathan, is, we're introduced to him for the first time, and we'll hear about him in a couple weeks again. But Nathan is the prophet that has been sent to David to, to help guide him in spiritual things. And so he says, Nathan, hey, I'm in this beautiful house but the Lord is out in that tent. And here's what Nathan says in verse 3. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, because God is with you. You know, Nathan, I could, I, I could just picture him. Being a pastor and, you know, how people come to you different times. Here's, here's a guy who says, I want to do something great for the Lord. And he's like, yes, amen, do it. For sure. It's not illegal. 
good. It's you have the right heart, good. It will glorify God, good. Do it. That's a pretty good checklist. But what Nathan could not observe was it, was it God's will? Was it God's will? He didn't know that. That's very subjective. Right? I mean, illegal or legal, that's objective. We can get that. But is it God's will? We don't always know. So when Nathan hears it at first, he's like, yeah, I think you move forward with that. But remembering that God is the one who's sovereign, he's in control, and sometimes he might give you one door that's open, but the next one or a couple after that might be closed. And that was kind of David's thing. It got the, the first pass through with Nathan, green light, go. But later that night, God would meet Nathan, speak to him, and change plans. How does David respond to that when God says no, but when he changes plans like that? See, he came to the Lord with an open hand and said, here's what I want to do. I'm putting this before the Lord. I'm going to let the Lord enter into this and confirm or, or stop things. And so that's what he did. So first thing, bring these requests to the Lord with an open hand. The second thing, though, he did is he let God have authority to speak into his life. He's letting God have a sport authority to speak to the hopes and dreams that he has. God did speak to, to Nathan. And the next day, Nathan shows up at David's house in the morning, knocks on the door and says, hey, you know that building permit that I gave you yesterday? I'm going to have to take it back. You know? And David could have been there like, no, no, you're not taking that back. That's mine. But he's letting God have authority. And so... Uh, it's clear, though, that as God is speaking to Nathan here in this evening dream, while David sleeps well and tight and dreams of this temple, God is speaking to Nathan, and basically he's saying, hey, the plans that David has to build a house are not my plans that I have for David. He wants to build something for me, but instead I'm going to build something for him. If he builds me a house, that's going to get in the way of my plans of building something for him. And in these next 13 verses or so, about 33 times God uses the personal pronoun like, I, I'm going to do this. This is my will. 33 times. It's clear that God is still active, that God is still on the move, that he's not ready to settle down and retire in Florida, that he's still moving. He's still active. See, when, he, when they were in the desert, it made perfect sense to be in a tent because they were moving from place to place, but now they're in Jerusalem. Why not get brick and mortar and build a, a building? But God's saying, no, 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 I'm still doing something here. I'm still working. You guys are relaxing, but I'm on the move. I'm not ready to settle down. And so he speaks to Nathan throughout this night, and he says in verse 5, he says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelled in a house from the day that I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place in a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever ask of their rulers and command to sh that shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He's saying, David, your desire is to have a house made of cedar, but that's not mine. I'm okay. I never asked you to do this. So we're just going to step back. That's what God has done. But what is God doing? He continues in verse, 11, verse 8. 
He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. But now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they will have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. So David, I'm still doing something great. I'm going to make your name one of the greatest on the earth, and I'm going to bring my people a home, a home where they can be established and where they can be taken care of, not just in Jerusalem, but all through Israel. That's what I'm doing then he continues to what he will do. And this, this is great. Because this has eternal ramifications. This is what we call a Davidic covenant. He says in verse 11, he says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He will be the one who will build a house in my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But, but, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, David, you want to build me a house? That's cute. That's sweet. I'm going to build you a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, one that will never end. You're going to do your job. I'm going to bring up your son. He will build this temple. That kingdom will last for eternity. Now, when they heard this, they were thinking of Solomon. They were thinking of this earthly kingdom that would last for, for eternity. How great is that? A king forever in Israel. The problem is it only lasted about four centuries. And Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Jerusalem and took the Davidic king off of the throne and destroyed the temple, the one that he just built. What happened? What happened? Does God's promises end? Was God wrong? Or could it be that God was thinking of something even better? Even better. Isaiah the prophet and the other prophets go crazy now. They're like, well, if it wasn't Solomon and it wasn't the real kingdom, what does this mean? And they go through and they look at the scriptures, they re-examine this passage. And they came up with this, that it's the Messiah that he's talking about. It's not just Solomon, but it's the Messiah. It's God's son who would build this house for his people, this house that would endure forever, that would be eternal, the house that we're in right now, that it's his kingdom. You see, David thinking of something just so small and rectangle and physical, God's saying, but I'm building something that's greater than that, eternal, the kingdom of God. It's his house, a house that will endure forever. And I'm going to use you, David. I'm going to use your whole family line. Way more than David could ever imagine, right? Blows his mind. 
God is good. And God said, you know, I like your plans, but not right now, not for you. It's my turn to build. So how's David respond? We see that even shut doors are a time to respond in worship. David doesn't get mad. He doesn't get angry. But he worships. You know why? It's because he was doing this out of a motivation of love. This was his desire. He's like, I want to serve God. I want to love him. I want to thank him. I want to show him how deep appreciation I have for him. But when God says no, he's like, I, I still love you. I still am in awe and I can still worship you. But what if it was David's plan? What if it had nothing to do with God? What if it was something like, hey, I want to make my name great. I want to build a beautiful palace so that I can get recognition. You know, so my name will go forth. If that were the motivation, when God says no, he would be upset, wouldn't he? He'd be mad, frustrated. That's not fair. Go and pout. Throw a little pity party or temper tantrum or whatever. That's how we know what our motivations are. God says no if we're still able to respond with worship that comes from a good place, a, a place of love. When, it, when we get angry and mad, it comes from a selfish place most likely. And that's why God's not going to allow that. But we see him do four things, and I think they're worth noting and probably good for us to remember if we find ourselves in this situation. How to respond to that. First thing we see is David responds humbly before the Lord. He humbly accepts God's decision. God says, no, he's like, I get it. It says in verse 18, now this is David now. It says, then King David went and sat before the Lord. And just right there, he's sitting before the Lord. This isn't a quick little prayer. It's not just like, eh, all right, let's move on. He sits before the Lord. He's hearing the Lord, and he's responding to him. And while he's sitting before him, he says, who am I, sovereign Lord? And what's my family that you brought me this far? It says in verse 20, what more can I say to you? For you know your servant. You are the sovereign Lord. I'm your servant. He humbly accepts God's will. Just says, I'm just happy to be known by you. I'm just happy to be loved by you. I'm just happy that I'm in your plans at all. But that's okay. If you don't want me to build this temple, I'm fine with that. I humbly acknowledge that. Second thing that he does is worship. His humble response leads him to worship. And he worships God for what, who he is. He's great and sovereign, that he's the God of promises, that he's the God of blessings. He, he worships him for all these things. He says, how great you are, verse 22, sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God but you. He continues, you have established your people of Israel as your very own forever. You, O oh Lord, you have become their God. And I'm worshiping you for who you are. You are the great and sovereign God. And I don't know how many times he uses sovereign Lord here in this whole passage, but it's many times. The point is, I'm, you are great, and your plans are far beyond anything that my mind could establish or comprehend. So I'm worshiping you for how great you are. And then he says, you are the God who keeps promises. Verse 25, and you, Lord, you keep forever the promise that you made concerning your servant. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. You are the faithful God who's been faithful in the future. You've kept all your promises. You will continue to do that. So Lord, as long as I'm in your promise, then I'm thrilled. I'm fine. You are the faithful God. He continues and he thanks God for, thanks God for all of the blessings. He says, because you've done all this, 
sovereign Lord. You are trustworthy. He says in verse 29, now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Father, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for the blessing that you pour out. Continue to pour this out so that it will be something that will continue forever. Let me bless me and this house and what we're doing so that it can continue and others, so many others can be blessed. All of this is his worship to the Lord. It's done out of heart for love. But he humbly accepts, he worships, and then he does something really amazing. He helps someone else succeed. He doesn't just say, oh, that's it. All right, you said no. All right, I'm done. I'm going to leave it, walk away, and, and just do something else. He, he still loves us, and he knows that it's going to happen. It's just down the road. So he does everything he can to prepare the temple for Solomon to build. You know, when he gets this word, Solomon's not even born yet. He's not even alive. So this would take a good 20 or 30 years for David to wait for this temple to be built while he's looking at this tent. And 20 or 30 years is a long time to prepare. We're told in 1 Chronicles 22 that David made extensive preparations before his death. Extensive. Here's how extensive. All the gold he could find, he dedicated it to the Lord. All these nations that they went and fought against, when they won, they would get this, this bounty. They would take that and he would dedicate it to the Lord. So there were millions of talents of silver. I don't know how many a million talents of silver is, but that's a lot. Okay? And then it says there was so much bronze and iron that they couldn't even count it. If you can count to a million, but you can't count you know, all the bronze, that's a lot of bronze. That's a lot of iron. So he did all of this. Then it says that he prepared people with their crafts. So stone cutters, he, he, he took them to like school, like here's how to be the best stone cutter. Here's how to be the best seamstress. Here's how to be the, the best, I don't know, gold shaper and all that. Like he had all these professionals ready and trained and prepared so when Solomon started, they would be ready. They would know exactly what to do. It says in 1 Chronicles 28 that he made blueprints. He had blueprints of the whole place lined out. Here's the court. Here's the different rooms. Here's where you're going to, the storage rooms. You know, all of this kinds of things. Like, he had it all planned. He even had, you know, down to how much gold would be for, you know, different objects in the, in the temple. He had it down to how many priests would be needed at any given time. Like, he had extensive plans. It was all there. It's like Israel's first Ikea. You know, it's like all right there, Solomon. It's all right there in the box. Everything you need is ready. But I'm not going to build it. You are. You see how he, he didn't just abandon it. He supported it. So when God says no to you in your plan, suppose you want to start a Bible study at work. You're at work and you know, there's a few Christians and at lunchtime, you say, hey, let's start a Bible study, but it, for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. God says no to you. But Jerry in accounting starts it. He starts a Bible study, and you see a flyer that he has up there. How do you respond? You get all mad at Jerry, like, I should have done that. I could have done a better job. Or do you support him with everything you can? My, uh, my father... Um, 
went to different schools. He never went to a Christian school. It was later on in life that he was like, I wish I had the opportunity to go to a, a Christian university and have a Christian education, but he never did, and you know, it was kind of past for him. But you know what he did? It's pretty cool. He, he said, I can't go, but I want others to go. So he started a scholarship, and it started with one scholarship to help one student. And it took some seed money, but he started that. And then he got another one, and, and then I think there's three right now. And it's beautiful because for us as kids, it's like, what do you get dad, you know, for Father's Day? Like golf balls, you know, a bag of peanuts or, you know, whatever. Like, he has everything. But what we get to do is every Father's Day, his birthday, Christmas, you know, um, we can just write a check to the school. Just say, hey, we made another donation in your name. And um, now this scholarship has grown over the years. And it, it helps all kinds of students. It's like thinking outside of the box. It might not be your thing, but what can you do to support that and support what somebody else is doing? Well, David couldn't build it. He helped Solomon succeed. Last thing that we see is he remained faithful to what God had called him to do. He much, I'm sure at this point in his life, he'd had enough fighting, and he would much rather just stay in Jerusalem and build the temple. But God said, that's not what I called you to do. Go back out there and secure the borders. So he was faithful to that. You flip over the page and you go to chapter 8, you see immediately he's going out and, and establishing those borders. And you'll see that throughout his career. So that Solomon, when he takes the throne finally, he reflects back. He says, you know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build the temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord has given me rest on every side. There's no adversary for disaster. Now I intend to build the temple for the Lord. God said, your role, David, is to do something different. Establish security and safety. What are you called to? I know you might want to be called to something else, but what are you called to do? And as, until God pulls that away, until he changes plans, keep staying faithful with that. It might be hard. It might be tough. It might be frustrating. But continue to do what God has called you, just like David stayed faithful to what he was called to do. So friends, we have the story here in the Bible of a time where David wanted to do something great, and it sounded good, didn't it? God said no. Your prayers, your plans, your hopes, your dreams probably sound great. And if we heard them and we kind of shared all that, we'd, you know, a lot of them would be like, yeah, you should do that. That would be great. But let's go through that process. Bringing these things to the Lord, letting him speak, letting him have authority into our life. And if he does bless us, go forward and do it with all your might. But if he says no, just hold back. Humbly accept his word. Support those who are doing it. And stay faithful to what you are called to do. May we be people that respond, that listen. May God give us wisdom to seek out his will each and every day. And I, I look forward. I look forward to seeing what God is going to do in your life and in my life, in this church, your hopes and dreams. But let us make sure we go forward with God's blessing.
first and foremost. Amen?